Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. For many of us, it's hard to realize how much what we call agriculture has changed in the USA over the last century. And today's Spirit in Action guest, Keith Keeley, is going to talk about the efforts of the Savannah Institute to research alternate ways forward for feeding ourselves from the earth. But before we talk to Keith, let's get a snapshot of our domestic policies on agriculture from Myron Buckholz in another installment of History and Our Best Future. Then, on to the full interview about the Savannah Institute. You know, Myron, there are so many aspects of environmentalism, ways of how we have to be aware of how we're treating the land. And I wonder if, in the past, farmers were aware of just what was needed to care for the earth. I, mean, I don't know, but it seems to me that our government encouraged people to settle the country, you know, reach out and grab as much as you can, clear-cut the trees, fence the plains, dig up all that you can, produce as much as you can, and that those policies and goals worked against the welfare of the earth. So what were the actual policies and attitudes of the past toward farming, and how do we need to maintain or change them now and into the future? We've known what the right thing is to do for a very long time. 1862, the Lincoln administration passed into law the Homestead Act, which granted 160 acres, and acres about a football field, of land to any settler who would plant 10 acres of trees, especially on the Great Plains. The idea is trees are useful as a building material, as, a, as shelter, and also as a windbreak. Many of those tree claims, as they were known to be called, were faked. People took the land but didn't plant the trees. And on the Great Plains, you have to nurture trees to keep them alive. It's not like living here in Wisconsin, where you get plenty of rain and trees just seem to grow all over the place. So it was the law, but it was not really promoted to the extent that it was intended. That whole era ends with the dirty 30s. The land dried up even worse. The dirt farming techniques that were being used were incredibly bad. And then there is a look at what we had done and what we need to do. And so we had a huge push of tree planting again all up and down the Great Plains. Uh, the term tree claim takes you back to 1862, a claim of land for planting trees. And then the terminology from the 50s is the shelter belt. And you could get all kinds of government assistance to plant rows of trees about every quarter mile to break the wind coming from Canada, heading all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Those shelter belts worked incredibly well, and they're a good conservation technique for all kinds of wildlife and for protecting the soil from the wind velocity. My big fear now is that with the advent of heavily chemical farms, that when I travel back out there, I see a lot of dead trees. 
I don't know that we're doing as good a job as we need to do to keep those trees alive so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. I'm pretty sure that the knowledge of many of our listeners is pretty shallow. When you refer to the 1930s, what is known as the Dust Bowl, could you describe the magnitude of that event? Well, it caused a tremendous out-migration of people from all up and down the Great Plains. The population just plummeted. We end up with a number of different rules coming out of that, especially environmental laws, as I've mentioned, and the promotion of trees and also the building of dams to hold water back in preparation for the next time there's a drought. Well, all that dam building now is being questioned as well. You break the natural flow of the streams and so on. So there's always questions being raised. But the two things that I can really think of are the tree planting and the building of dams and almost every tiny little river and major rivers were dammed up not only for hydroelectric power, but also for water for use in the next drought. I'm afraid, Myron, that part of the incentive under the fiscal thumb of donors to campaigns, the incentive is for our government to deregulate even further. So the shelter belt, the kind of incentives that were offered there to protect our land, have those been degraded further? Is there any kind of assurance in law, any kind of leverage that the government has been using or maybe is ceasing to use to encourage this kind of tree planting and protecting of our land resources? One of the programs that causes a significant amount of controversy for the big farm states is the CRP. It's a crop reduction program, and it was paying farmers to not plant, to let their fields go back to natural grasslands with the idea of reducing the volume of grain, which then, in effect, raises the price. That, conservation-wise, was very, very good, but it also takes land out of production. And so with the price of grains go up, farmers want to plant more and more and more. Unfortunately, that is the situation that it created the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. In the 1920s, the price went down and people planted as much as they could plant, same ground over and over and over again. The difference today is chemicals that are being used for fertilizer keep the land productive and the genetically modified seeds can withstand much drier conditions than they could ever have stood before. But the taking land out of conservation programs and removing trees that you can plant every acre is something that has been going on. And now I think another part of that whole story is the incredible use of irrigation. Anybody who's flown over the Great Plains and looked out the window on a clear day sees those wonderful green circles. We are using that Ogallala Aquifer and the aquifers out there and irrigating land that was never meant to grow as much crop as it is growing. And I don't know that that's sustainable, and there is significant concern about the over-irrigation and the overuse of the aquifers for that. Thanks to Myron Buckles for adding to my and probably your knowledge of what our actual policies have been. Drawing on his 34 years of teaching history in high school, we'll have lots more visits with Myron, and you can hear them all individually on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website under the History and Our Best Future program. But right now, we'll turn to our Spirit in Action guest, Keith Keeley, Executive Director of the Savannah Institute. According to their website, 
They work with farmers to explore the potential of savanna-based systems to become ecologically sound, agriculturally productive, and economically viable alternatives to the corn-soybean rotation that currently dominates agriculture in the Midwestern United States. In other words, it's all about researching, discovering, and empowering resilient agricultural practices. So let's go now by Skype to Keith Keeley of the Savannah Institute to get down to the nitty-gritty. Keith, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me, Mark. You are a busy man. I was trying to get a hold of you about a week ago, and you were kind of incommunicado. Is that normal for someone working as the head of an organization? Well, I couldn't speak for everyone in this position, but this time of year myself, I'm spending a lot of time away from means of communication, such as computer and phone. So uh, I count that as a blessing. (laughs) So where is this place that has no phone and no computer access? A lot of us want to go there. (laughs) Well, I'm out on farms uh, working with them on various research projects a lot these days. So I do carry my phone with me, but I'm just not on it that often. And so when the weather's nice, it's a nice place. (laughs) It's a good discipline to have. Far too many people can ignore their phone in order to be present where they are. Is this part of your personal discipline? I guess I'd like to say it is, but it's more a matter of necessity. You know, when you're in the middle of doing one thing, sometimes it just doesn't allow you to stop and pick up the phone. Well, let me recapitulate how I found the Savannah Institute. I did an interview with a guy named Dick Hogan a couple weeks ago. He's at a place called Greenfire Farm near Athens, Ohio. In course of looking up about him, I found that there was a green fire farm just south of Madison here in Wisconsin, and I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So while looking at Jacob and green fire farm in Wisconsin, I noticed that uh, their inspiration, their mentors, their very important helpers in kicking their business off was the Savannah Institute. So could you tell folks what the Savannah Institute is? Sure. And by the way, Greenfire Farm, I'm glad to hear there's more than one because uh, I could hardly think of a better name for a farm. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the Savannah Institute? The Savannah Institute is a nonprofit organization, and that means that we exist. We work for the public benefit. Our mission is in research and education involved in perennial agriculture, in a word. And I can get, of course, into more detail about that as we go on. But basically, we work with farmers and researchers to learn more about various kinds of agriculture techniques for growing food and for caring for the land. And there's a clue that you're somewhat different in that it's called the Savannah Institute. So why Savannah? So the savanna in our name comes from the oak savanna. The Midwestern oak savanna was the primary ecosystem before uh, folks with plows came across the land. And so we look to that oak savanna as a model or a system that we might mimic in our agriculture. That's where the name comes from, is that ecosystem that once covered most of the Midwest. And I'm imagining you have a much better idea of what that was like than what we do. So before people from Europe moved across the country and started with the plows and get rid of the buffalo and all that, how would the land have looked different from what we imagine? Yeah, so the Midwest, of course, is very diverse. So there's lots of different kinds of landscapes. 
But a savanna is somewhere in between an open prairie without trees and a forest with a closed canopy overhead where the trees are close together and you look up and you can't see the sky. The savanna is sometimes described as an open woodland or a park-like setting where there are scattered trees, big trees, and oak trees in our case being the most common, and then in between those trees, spaces with various kinds of grasses and and wildflowers and, and shrubs and smaller trees interspersed in between them. It's sort of a picturesque setting, and it just so happens that savannas create very rich soil as part of just existing. That's what they do. And so it's probably no accident that most of them now have been turned into agricultural land. So there are very few natural savannas still left, but enough around that we can still learn from them and and how they work. So before I got you on the phone, I was speaking with Myron Buckles, who was a history teacher. And so he talked a bit about how the landscape changed and how our laws and our practices came to change the land. And people, of course, have heard the phrase, the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Was that land that was Savannah that got converted, or is that too far out of the Midwest area where you're concerned with? Well, when people classically think of the Dust Bowl, they are thinking of further west, more arid regions. What we have in the Midwest, we have more rainfall. And so our savannas tend to turn into forest, which is what has happened to ones that haven't been turned into farms. But we had our own version of the Dust Bowl in the Midwest, and I take some of my inspiration from the story in Coon Valley, Wisconsin, where in the steep hillsides of our hilly or driftless region in Wisconsin, there were big problems with erosion. And it wasn't as much wind erosion, which was a big problem in the Dust Bowl out west, but erosion caused by water running across the land and exposed soil on those hillsides. And so our version of the Dust Bowl here was learning how to put more vegetation in place on those hillsides and to plow on contour as opposed to up and down the hills and various ways for keeping the soil in place. And that's a tradition that we're really aiming to continue and just help agriculture, farming, become better and better about keeping the soil in place and even building the soil richer and richer after year. I looked at the map of the farms that you deal with as part of the savannainstitute.org website, and I saw you extend quite a ways. You just said that, you know, well, that area out there where the Dust Bowl, where we mainly think of it as happening, as not being the Midwest. What do you consider to be the Midwest? Which states does that include? (laughs) Well, that's a a classic question, I think, for a lot of folks in the Midwest, wherever you are, happens to be the center of the Midwest. (laughs) Well, of course, Wisconsin's the center of the Midwest. We know that. (laughs) But for our purposes, we think of the Midwest in terms of the historic oak savanna biome. So a biome is an area where a certain type of ecosystem or associated ecosystems are in place or are uh, the primary land cover. So that extends, in some sense, the upper Mississippi Valley is another way to put it. There are maps that show the historic range of the oak savanna. But the purpose of thinking this way is what are similar climate and soils and growing conditions so that the farmers we're working with can be exchanging knowledge that's most directly useful to each other. You're also the Savannah Institute, so it's not only Midwest. We're talking about something, the Oak Savannah. And I, I think that does not include, but correct me if I'm wrong, the Kickapoo Valley area, which is where you originated from. You know, the Driftless area, is that also Savannah, Oak Savannah? Well, interestingly enough, there was a scientific paper that came out in 2014, so just a couple of years ago 
that looked at some of the history of the Driftless area, which the Kickapoo Valley is entirely within. And that's a whole other story why we have these hills in southwest Wisconsin, because the glaciers that flattened most of the Midwest did not come through. But the Kickapoo Valley was part of the Driftless, which was 70% oak savanna prior to European settlement. So that is within the savannah range as well. Although in parts of the Kickapoo Valley, the steep hills uh, fire from being so common, and the river actually acted as a fire break as well. And fire was one of the reasons why savannas were across much of the Midwest. The fire kept the forests from closing into a canopy above and and kept the space in between the trees and, and the space for the grasses and wildflowers and other plants to thrive. So why Savannah Institute? When we think of farms, we've been trained, I think, to think of, you know, flatten the land, get rid of all the obstacles and have your tractors drive for 10 miles, turn around and come back and do the next row. I mean, that's an image that I think has been inculcated in us since the Green Revolution, as it's been called. Why is that not the appropriate way to think about it? Well, we're interested in seeing how nature works, and that can sound sort of fanciful, but we try to take a scientific point of view towards it and see that if you look anywhere where humans are not so directly intervening like they are on a farm, whether it's a prairie or a savanna or a forest or a wetland, it's very productive, especially this time of year in the middle of June. We can see things are growing very quickly and there's animals everywhere. And that's without having to do any of that work of clearing the land and driving the tractor back and forth and putting on lots of inputs of fertilizers and pest controls and and that sorts of thing. And so if nature can do all that without adding all of these things, in that sense, it's much more efficient. And really, that's why farmers do these things. We're trying to be efficient about the way that we farm. But nature has a different measure of efficiency. It's how much can we grow based on what's here already without putting more in. And so we look to nature as the measure for efficiency. And so nature has various strategies for doing that. And so that's why we look to the savanna. We say, how, how does the savanna do this? Just with the rain that falls and the sunshine that shines and the minerals that are already in the soil. I'm pretty sure, Keith, that a number of the listeners for Spirit in Action are very used to thinking about different agricultural methods, uh, biodynamic, permaculture, organic, etc. How is what the Savannah Institute studying different from those other groups? Or, I mean, it probably overlaps with some of them too, of course. It certainly does. It overlaps with what a lot of farmers are already doing. We're not really trying to reinvent the wheel here, although we are trying to think about agriculture in a sort of new light, I guess you would say. So the farmers we work with draw their inspiration from a lot of places, and and many of them have done that from biodynamics and permaculture and organics. One of the things that I think distinguishes the Savannah Institute is that where there's a lot of ecological sense behind some of these farming methods, In many cases, although there's important exceptions, there hasn't been the rigorous scientific research to understand how these farming methods work, if they work, and how they might be improved. So we're trying to bring science to bear on sustainable agriculture in a new way. I assume in order to do scientific measure, you have to define what you're trying to measure. And productivity is a term you already mentioned, Keith. What does productive mean as you're looking at it in terms of the Savannah Institute? 
Our primary program is called a case study program. And so farms can join us as case studies. And then we have a common method that farms share for tracking the productivity of the farm. And that includes both the plants and animals themselves that the farms are raising and keeping track of how they're growing and what those yields are. It also includes how the farm is performing financially. And then it also includes to various degrees of complexity measures like pollinators on the farm and wildlife. And and in some cases, we'll work with the farms to measure things that take a little bit more scientific care, probably beyond the capacity of your average farmer uh, taking soil cores to measure soil carbon and things of that nature. So why would you want to measure pollinators, wildlife, soil cores? Why are those important? I mean, from many farmers' point of view, the only thing they're really concerned about, this is a little simplistic, but financially, of course, that's a big thing. Are are they making enough money to stay in business? Because a lot of farms have gone out of business. Yes, we want to work with farmers on the financial aspects of their farm, because if that doesn't work, then the rest of the farm can't work. But farmers, for various reasons, also care about other aspects of their farm. They want to keep the soil in place. They want it to be a beautiful place where they can live, and in many cases, with their family. And I think many farmers want the farm to be a home for wildlife around them as well. And many farmers appreciate the beauty of having trees or, or meadows that aren't central to the financial picture of the farm. But what we're interested in is rather than having parts of the farm that are sort of sacrifice areas for making money and other parts of the farm that are set aside for nature, what if the primary productive parts of the farm could also be beautiful areas where there's also home for pollinators and wildlife? And like I was talking about the productivity of natural areas and natural savannas, We've seen places where this is possible, and there are other examples of this too. It's This is not just a fanciful idea, but it's especially managed grazing and intensively cared for pasture systems where the animals are rotated. There's been a lot of great work on farms to develop the practice and by scientists working with them to understand how various types of wildlife, pollinators, and grassland birds can really thrive while a farmer is making a good living as well. And so we're trying to work with farmers who want to see that sort of thing happen and develop the techniques to just become better and better about making money and caring for the land. What standards do your associated farms operate to? I mean, I assume you're not just grabbing just any farm, that there's some kind of a plan in place that you're measuring changes with respect to. Well, I like to say that we're not in the business of telling farmers what to do. So although I think there's an important place for certifiers and standards, that's just not our niche. But when we are going to potentially work with a farm, it's farms who are doing a few things. They're planting perennial crops. And by perennial, I mean plants that don't have to be replanted every year. So apple trees or pasture grasses and the livestock associated with those pasture grasses. And then we're also interested in what's called polyculture as opposed to monoculture. So instead of just growing one type of crop in the field, they're growing multiple crops in the same field. So instead of just apple trees, it might be apple trees with pasture grasses planted underneath. 
and then chickens or hogs or other livestock that rotates through that orchard at different times of the year to help clean up the apples that fall after the harvest or to help control the insect pests early in the year. And maybe it's not just apples. Maybe while the apple trees are young, there's currant bushes planted in between the apple trees to start to get a fruit crop earlier in the cycle of the orchard before the apple crops start to bear. So those two things, having perennial crops and planting them in polyculture. And then the last thing is that they want to participate in the research and education that we're doing in some form or another. So those are the standards, I guess, was the way you put it for the farms that we work with. But we also have various education events, field days and that sort of thing, where there's no standard or anybody, you know, checking credentials at the door. It's open to anybody that wants to just be a part of the community and and learn from each other. So does this mean, though, that a big corporate farm, the extensive monoculture, they would not be allowed into your study? Or are they allowed in as a control source you can compare with other research that you're doing? Well, we do have some studies where we do have controls, such as looking at what are the pollinator populations in a field of soybeans compared to a diverse orchard and that sort of thing. But that's not, we're not working to try to improve the efficiency of annual crops. There are lots of researchers doing that. And and as long as we're growing annual crops and we want to get better at doing that, but our purpose is to try to improve what we see as more transformatively different sorts of agriculture. So we're not trying to exclude anybody. And in fact, one of the things that we also are interested in is, like we talked about, what's going to be financially feasible? What's going to be a commercial scale operation that can make a living for a family? And I think that there are lots of people who are growing food in the ways that I've described Permaculture, for example, has a lot of people practicing it in their backyards. And that's excellent. That's what I have going in my backyard. But the farms that span hundreds of acres are where a lot of the food that we eat comes from. And so those are the farms that ultimately we want to see doing this. And so, in fact, the bigger the farm is, the more interested we are in working with it. But only if that farm wants to start planting perennial crops. And there are farms that are doing that. So I assume that means you're not dealing, at least primarily, with farms that are doing the soybean, the corn, the wheat. And they have a place, obviously, in our food scheme that we use currently in the U.S. So they're not included? They can't be included in the kind of vision that the Savannah Institute's working with? Well, they certainly can. One of the words I haven't used yet is agroforestry. That's the field or the the discipline that is used in scientific conversation often. And that the USDA and across the world, really, agroforestry means that in brief, it's any way that you're including trees on farms and that trees are integrated with the farm. So it's not if you have your, your woodlot in the back 40 of the farm and then this is where your fields are. It's if you decide we're going to plant rows of trees in with our other crops. And so alley cropping is one of those agroforestry practices. And so if a farmer of corn or soybeans or wheat or anything else really wanted to plant rows of trees every 60 feet or every 90 feet or whatever the width of their equipment is that's going to go through there, that would be considered perennial crops. Those trees, whether they were for timber or shade for the animals or for some fruit or nut crop, 
those trees would be perennial and it would be a polyculture because you have multiple crops mixed together. And if they wanted to do some research on that, see how it's working and work with us to do that or, or education to host some field days to get other farmers on their farm and, and say, here's what we're doing. What do you think of this? And here's what's worked for us and here's what hasn't. Then very welcome to join in what we're doing. I think farmers by nature, many farmers are conservative. And by conservative, I, I don't mean in the political sense. I mean, doing what they know works. Many farmers are very intrepid and trying new things. But if you try too many new things that don't work, then it's hard to keep a farm going. And so I think it's a, in some sense, a survival technique to want to look at the farms over the fence and see, well, let them try something new first and we'll see how it works for them. And if it's working well for them, then maybe we'll try it out here. And so we're primarily working with those farmers who are pioneers or in the sense who are the first ones to try the new things. And then we want to help them set things up so that when the farmer, the neighbor says, how are things working for you? We can help them share both the stories, but also the numbers to say, here's how it's working. Now, the Savannah Institute only originated in 2013. And so that means that you're really just getting off the ground as far as many such organizations are considered. I think that means you're still in the process of designing your research or that you're refining your research constantly. I assume amongst the things that you have to do is some kind of a survey of what life is there at the start of your research. You have to be measuring inputs and outputs. Can you give me a broad idea of what pieces you are measuring and studying? Sure. We are a young organization, and many of the farms that we work with, intentionally, we try to work with them from when they're just getting started. And so we can get the whole picture on inputs, what's going into the farm, how much money is invested in starting the farm, how much time goes into planning and planting and implementing and managing from day one. So money and time are big ones. What are the plant materials going in? Where are those plants coming from? And then we can compare from farm to farm if they're getting their plants from the same source or different varieties of plants. How do they perform? How do they grow? And so that's how we're trying to build up these case studies is to have a, a sort of whole picture or whole farm accounting. We also have, again, as we grow from a young organization, some projects that come along that don't require us to start from the beginning. For example, we're in the middle of a project where we've been interviewing experienced farmers and trying to capture some of their knowledge that they've gained over the years in what have been effective ways to establish various perennial crops. Because one of the things we're trying to help facilitate is so each farmer doesn't have to do their own trial and error, but can learn from each other's. So our case study program is sort of where we started and trying to get some baseline, like you say, for the finances and the management and the ecological conditions at the beginning of the farm. But then we're also being selective about working with other farms that we can learn something important from that are not necessarily starting at day one. Folks, we're speaking with Keith Keeley. He is executive director of the Savannah Institute, website savannahinstitute.org. He's my guest here today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org, and that's O-R-G, like in organic. On our site, you can find 11 years of our programs for free listening and download on themes of peace and justice, environmental, many other ways that we're improving the world. 
Also on that site, you'll find links to our guests. So when you want to get a hold of Keith Keeley and the Savannah Institute, you'll find the link right on NordenSpiritRadio.org. There's a place for comments. We love two-way communication. Post your comment when you visit. There's a place to donate. We're completely funded by your donations. We are not beholding to either government or corporations. And so your donations make a tremendous difference to this full-time work. But even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio stations. We so vitally need alternative sources of information, news, music, alternatives to the mainstream culture so that we can explore forward and learn more, which is exactly what the Savannah Institute is doing. Keith Keeley, as their executive director, came on board just six months or so after they got started back in 2013, and they're researching around the oak savannas of the Midwest, and that seems to extend, according to their map, quite a ways out. It's further than I was thinking. I want to get into some of the specifics of your study, but there's a few more things about how you do the research for Savannah Institute that are important to me. One is uh, what I read Again, I got contact with you through Green Fire Farms just south of Madison, Wisconsin. Jacob commented how important it was the information that they got from you in terms of getting started up. And I should mention that Jacob is farming a part of the farm that his father has been farming. So they're kind of doing a subset exploration compared to what the big farm was like that has already some track record. It seemed to me that Jacob said that you were also doing education. Does that make sense that you're doing education as well as research? Or it, A lot of what I read on your website was that you're just doing research. Well, research and education, I think, are two sides of the same coin. Because if you're doing research and learning things, but you're not sharing them, and that's the education piece, then what's the purpose of the research? So education is really vital to what we do. And our education takes various forms, everything from on-the-farm field days to digital communications to farmer gathering in the wintertime when people can just get together and talk shop when there's not as much happening on the farms. And Jacob is a great story with that. He got interested in farming. Jacob was the farmer you're talking about down at Green Fire Farm in southern Wisconsin. And he studied wildlife as a college student and then got the farming bug soon after he graduated. He grew up on a dairy farm, but he knew he he didn't want to farm quite like that. And studying wildlife, I think, is where he got introduced to the term green fire, which was Aldo Leopold's phrase for the light that he saw in the eyes of the wolf that he shot out west when he was a young man. And in his essay, Thinking Like a Mountain, Aldo Leopold describes that only after many years of studying the land did he realize that the mountain understood that it needed the wolves to control the deer herd. Otherwise, the, the forests were disappearing on that mountain. So the green fire, I think, really holds the, the wisdom of that. What does this land know that we might learn from the land? And that doesn't sound very scientific to some ears. But really, that is the study of ecology, and that's what Aldo Leopold was one of the pioneers of the scientific field of ecology. So Jacob came down to our winter farmer gathering just as he kind of caught wind of what some of the other farmers were working with or doing. And he came away from that just brimming full of ideas. And by the next spring, he started planting a few things and got some support from the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service to put in some new fencing systems on his family's farm and plant some of their row crop fields into permanent pasture. And this spring, another year later, 
he's expanded that size of that pasture maybe tenfold and now he's got grass-fed steers and hogs and lambs and chickens as well and he's planted hundreds of trees and shrubs this spring primarily looking to fruit and nut crops that can feed some of his animals uh, alternatives to row crop feed going forward and so he really benefited from that particular education piece, our winter farmer gathering, where he could meet with other farmers who were actually doing this stuff and take some of his ideas about what he thought a farm might look like and, and start thinking concretely about what he might do on his own farm. So is this typical of the farms that get associated with the Savannah Institute, that they're at the beginning of their learning curve or implementation curve? It really is. I think that's a lot of the benefit that farmers see in, in coming aboard and joining our community is, is learning from other farmers. And even though we're a young organization, some of the farmers that have just been working with us for a couple of years and started really early on in that learning curve, they don't realize how much they've learned until they start talking to somebody who's where they were just a couple of years earlier. And we had that experience just this past winter where some of the farmers who felt like they are still novices and beginners, but were talking to people who hadn't even started yet and just had ideas and were looking at how they might start their own farming enterprise. And they realized as they started talking about the methods for controlling weeds and keeping deer off of their plants or various strategies for fencing animals away from new perennial plantings, that they actually knew quite a bit and had a lot to share. So that's really a lot of the purpose of our organization is just to facilitate or be a, a space or community for farmers to learn and share with each other. Yeah, I don't want to get you in trouble, Keith, but I understand you're in the process maybe of research for an MS in agroecology at UW-Madison. So are you doing two things at once? You're fulfilling the needs of the Savannah Institute at the same time you're getting valuable data for your master's? So I actually finished my master's. I probably need to update <laughs> the website. I actually am working on a PhD as well. So, But a lot of that is the research that we're doing at the Savannah Institute. We're gathering data that I'm marshalling into something that will hopefully be PhD worthy. And that's been a really positive association for me to, to continue to have ties with the University of Wisconsin. We have projects either in active collaboration or that are pending grant funding with the University of Wisconsin and the University of Illinois been our primary collaborators. But University of Minnesota Extension, we're doing a, a silvopasture camp with coming up next month. I've been down to Purdue University a couple times to speak at their small farm conference. And so this connection between the universities and farms is another place where we think the Savannah Institute is. It's actually what got the Savannah Institute started was graduate students at the University of Illinois were doing some work with perennial polycultures and farmers wanted to get involved, but these researchers at the University of Illinois didn't have a great way to engage with those farmers. And so starting a nonprofit organization seemed like a better way to have a way for farmers to connect with this research world and for researchers to connect with farmers and do studies on those farms to see how things work in the real world, so to speak, and not just on their university research trial areas. I've got to take a little detour here, Keith, because you refer to these oak savannas, and so oaks being part of it. Most folks do not think of oaks as being productive in terms of human consumption, although acorns have a long history with the human race as a primary foodstuff, at least according to my friend Sam Thayer Price, who's a wild foods expert. And so I wonder 
certainly historically acorns have been fed to pigs and other animals and all kinds of animals squirrels and others use them so they're productive to nature as well is there any farm anywhere that's actually collecting the acorns for human consumption well, I'm glad you asked about this because it, it is something that's not immediately apparent as to why an oak savanna would have anything to do with a farm. And you're right that oak trees do have a long history of, of being a human food source, but right now they're not really. There are actually, a, I don't know where they're getting their acorns, but there is a, a cracker company down in Texas that I just heard about. I forget what they're called, but they're making their crackers with acorn flour. I think it includes some other flours as well, but it's a gluten-free cracker. So it is possible and it is happening in, in small degrees. But our interest is not necessarily on oak trees in particular, but rather the niche or the place in the ecosystem that oak trees fill. And what that is, is it's your canopy tree. It's the tallest tree out there and it's the one that has the largest crop. So anybody who's been around oak trees has seen the volume of acorns that can fall from them. And that, that is productivity. And it can be fed to hogs or humans can eat it too and that sort of thing. But there are other nut trees that have a similar kind of productivity that humans readily eat. And chestnuts are one that we're actively researching and that different farms are actively growing and, and harvesting and having really good food to eat and making a good living doing it. Chestnuts have a long history of cultivation throughout the world. And in many ways, they're uh, perfect human food. They can be eaten fresh or they can be preserved or they can be cooked. They're a high carbohydrate nut. And so they can in many ways replace in our diet from a nutritional point of view where we normally would look to grains. And from our point of view, much of the grain crops that we grow in our conventional food system are not actually used for food. They go to animal feed or they go into our cars or they're used to make all sorts of different things from plastics to baby diapers to shopping bags. And we've been working with folks in food processing and engineering departments at the University of Illinois and bringing them bags of chestnut flour. And just by kind of tweaking the controls on their processing equipment, they can use this chestnut flour in the same way that the corn is used to produce all these things. Carbohydrates are the main thing that we're talking about here. So that's where we look to oak trees and acorns in a roundabout way. Is that maybe it's not oak trees that you want to be the canopy tree in your agricultural ecosystem. Maybe it's chestnuts, or maybe it's standard-sized apple trees, or maybe you're down a little farther south and you want to grow pecans, or maybe you're farther north and you want to experiment with hybridizing hickories and pecans, or maybe you want to grow timber trees. And so instead of a bur oak, you decide to plant red oaks. And while you're waiting for your timber crop to mature, or maybe your timber crop is going to mature for your grandkids. But in the meantime, you're going to raise animals in amongst those oak trees, or you're going to plant fruit crops that you can harvest and sell while you're waiting for those timber crop to mature. So again, the, the oak tree in particular, I think does have potential if that's a farmer's passion and they think there's a way they can make a living while growing it. But there are other alternatives and we look to mimic the place that that oak tree has in the ecosystem, more so than trying to say that farmers should grow oak trees in particular. One of the things that I'm aware of, historically, before the Europeans settled and our method of agriculture took over 
the Great Plains and the Savannah region, you had mentioned that burns were normally, that fire would control the forest. Does that have to happen as part of the farms you're dealing with, or how is that avoided? Why is that either important or not important in the kind of agriculture you're talking about? Fire is one of the oldest tools that humans have to manage the land or to care for the land. And fire, like a lot of things that farmers do, can be destructive or it can help care for things. And what fire is in ecological terms is it's a disturbance. It removes some of the vegetation and makes way for new things to grow. And a lot of what farmers do could be called disturbance. And that's an ecological term. It's not meant to say that farmers are psychologically disturbed or anything like that. <laughs> uh, so instead of fire, it might be mowing or it might be bringing livestock through. So some way of removing some of the vegetation in a strategic way that's going to help the plants or the crops that you want to grow to grow and remove or set back some of those other plants that are also a part of the ecosystem. Well, you know, there's a, a really long list of questions that I have in my mind about what you're doing with Svan Institute in which this, I think the term that you like to use is regenerative type work, this regenerative type agriculture. It's about nurturing ecosystems instead of simply looking at one small subset of the output. So I could ask you those questions ad nauseum, but I'd also like to find out some things about you, Keith. Now, Keith Keeley is originally from the Driftless area. I have friends from Gaze Mills. Perhaps you even know Ellen Brooks and Dave Hackett and have connections with folks down there. It's not that big of an area that you couldn't have possibly run into him. How does a, a good boy from the Kickapoo Valley who ends up going to Swarthmore College end up doing Savannah Institute Agriculture? <laughs> well, I, I do know Ellen and Dave. Actually, I grew up near the Gaze Mills area, and my parents, my folks, came to the area to pick apples. They were part of that movement. Their migratory farm laborers really was their background and um, went on to do other things. So they picked apples with Dave and Ellen? Yeah, I don't know if they ever worked at the same orchard, but definitely a part of the same community. I know Ellen and Dave fairly well, and they're lovely folks. And that's actually a large part of how I got interested in this. Is My parents aren't farmers, but growing up in the Driftless, where it's a farming community, I was just naturally on farms a lot, worked on farms in high school. And after college, I worked on an organic vegetable farm. And it's a lot of work to re <laughs> redo it every year. <laughs> and so... I also, I studied forest ecology in college, and so I was familiar with these places where you don't have to replant things every year <laughs> called forests. And as I started to study more about ecology and agriculture, I studied agroecology in graduate school. There was a natural marriage there in the savannah, which is a mix of these open fields and what we normally think of as agriculture and the forest ecosystem which contains these long-lived organisms called trees that can, we think, have more and more uses that we're just beginning to scratch the surface on, uh, on making our farms more profitable and more ecologically intact. It sounds, Keith, like you had, your back had a very important motive in terms of dealing with a different kind <laughs> of production that's crucial on that level. But I also sense, and I, I heard echoes as you spoke, of a spiritual, a worldview outlook 
that makes this alternative way of looking at providing our livelihoods, being productive, but with a bigger picture in mind. Could you say something about your spiritual overview, your spiritual outlook on how we relate to the earth? I can try to. It's a difficult thing to express sometimes, but one of the things that I've had the opportunity to learn from farmers about relating to the land and what's the spiritual element there. And what I've learned is that working with the land, I guess my initial approach to it was, well, we ought to have an an ethic or we ought to have a moral code for what's the responsible or the appropriate way to work with the land. But I think it goes the other direction too. And the land might influence us rather than us thinking about how we might influence it. So that's been my experience is that when I'm working with the land, when my feet are on the ground and when I'm looking at the clouds moving up above, that there's what I try to cultivate in myself is a way of listening to that and seeing and hearing and feeling what the land wants of us. And so that's, I guess, as close as I can come to articulating a spiritual orientation to this, is trying to understand what the land wants of us and responding to that, rather than thinking from the other way around of what do we want from the land, first and foremost. So would it be fair to say that you have an earth-centered spirituality that's a deep part of you, and that as opposed to... I think a number of people uh, religiously get inculcated in them the idea that it's a dominance, a top down, you know, like we're at the head of everything and they better march to our marching orders. I think that humans do have a unique role as caretakers, and it certainly is within our capabilities to dominate the other life on Earth. And so I think it's important for us to realize that we do have those capacities. And so whether we say we should dominate or we don't, we do. And that's more true every day, I think, and, and apparent in our world. And so I think we might look towards that unique role that we have in the ecosystem and say, well, what kind of dominant role do we want to have? And hopefully that's one of what Aldo Leopold calls the oldest task in human history, to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. I found that there are religious teachings that are very important to me that provide a way of relating to the land where we can cultivate and grow into that role of whether you want to call it dominating or whether you want to call it stewardship. I don't think that the language is necessarily where the rubber meets the road. It's more about how do we live and how do we live in a place with other people and with other creatures. And so I guess that's where I like the spirit in action name of your radio program here. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Mark. Well, it's been great talking to you, Keith. Keep up the good work. I hope that the work of the Savannah Institute flourishes. And folks, again, the website, savannahinstitute.org. That's Savannah without an H at the end. If you have any doubt, just come via northernspiritradio.org. We've been speaking with Keith Keeley, the executive director for Savannah Institute. He operates out of Madison, but they cover a wide swath across what's generally known as the Midwest. Check out their website to find more about them. Thank you for kicking off the work, getting it started, and in gear, the Savannah Institute. I hope it's really fruitful both for the Institute itself, but for the wider community of people and plants and animals that occupy the Midwest. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. 
Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Thanks also to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. I want to share at least part of a song by a guest from my Song of the Soul program, Craig Simpson, about his grandfather and farming and, listen close, the dirty 30s that Myron mentioned back at the beginning of this program about the Dust Bowl. The song is Plum Creek Farmer by Craig Simpson, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Papa was a German, staunch and strict and distant as a glance Like being raised by strangers, the whip was used to teach him But he wanted to work on trains and ride the iron railroad But a farmer he was born, a proud farmer he would stay Grandpa here so blow, it's calling you, you know, across the prairie straight and true, just like the fields you sow. A family came, the weather changed, the dirty thirties blew. Across the prairie came the dust, crops were very few. Took a job where he could find farm and did not pay He showed the movies for the town, never went astray oh, Grandpa here, whistle blow, it's calling you, you know Across the prairie straight and true, just like the fields you sow The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.